You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual ODI event on the behavioral challenges of post-conflict life. My name is Stephanie Buell, and I'm the Policy and Practice Advisor for the Politics and Governance Program here at ODI. We are excited to have such a large audience today joining us. We have over 500 people registered to listen and participate, so thank you for being with us. Today's event is a collaboration between ODI and the Secure Livelihoods Research Consortium, SLRC. ODI is a global think tank that harnesses the power of research, evidence, and ideas to confront global challenges and create change. The SLRC, which is housed at ODI, is a research consortium that aims to strengthen the evidence and inform policy and practice around livelihoods, basic services, and state building in conflict-affected situations. The SLRC is primarily funded by the UK's Department for International Development, with co-funding from Irish Aid and the European Commission. I'll get a chance to tell you a little bit more about the SLRC and its main research findings later, but before I do, let me go through a few housekeeping rules and uh, introduce the panel. This event is being streamed on the ODI website and will be made available as a recording on YouTube shortly after. It'll also be made available as a podcast on SoundCloud and via Apple Podcasts. We'll be taking questions live from the audience today, so please do enter your questions or comments and reflections in the box which you should be seeing below the stream. Additionally, you can use the hashtag mentallandscape to tweet your questions and comments about this event. You can find us on at ODIDev. So now onto the panel. Joining me today are Kennedy Tumutirigiritse, the Program Director for East and Central Africa Conciliation Resources. Kennedy has led their program direction and program impl implementation in East and Central Africa since 2007, working in the Central African Republic, the DRC, South Sudan, and Uganda. He also previously worked as a conflict specialist with USAID in Uganda. We then have Benjamin Kumpf, the head of innovation at the UK's Department for International Development. Since the beginning of last year, Ben has been leading on innovation at DFID. He's the lead advisor for a number of programs and supports DFID's central and country office teams with advice on doing development differently, tech and non-tech innovation. Ben has worked intensively on post-conflict and trauma challenges in Rwanda and Germany, and he brings expertise in behavioral design and will bring in perspectives on policy implications generally, but not specifically to Northern Uganda. Then we have Dr. Teddy Atim, who's a researcher at Tufts University and SLRC Uganda. Teddy has been with the SLRC for nearly 10 years and is a visiting fellow at the Feinstein International Center at Tufts University. Her work focuses on the impact of the conflict between the government of Uganda and the Lord's Resistance Army in Northern Uganda. She's particularly interested in the experience of conflict on people's ability to rebuild in the aftermath of violence. And then last but not least, we have Dr. Marika Shomaris, who is the Vice President at the Busara Center, as well as the Research Director for the SLRC. Marika is a widely published researcher with a body of work on the resolution of violent conflict and behavior and political contestation. So before I hand over to our first panelist, as I promised, let me tell you a little bit more about the research from the SLRC, which you'll be hearing a lot about today. Over the last 10 years, the SLRC has been producing evidence on the ways in which people live their lives, access services, perceive the state, 
and behave in areas once are still affected by conflict and fragility. So that's quite a broad range of evidence, and you might have two immediate questions. First of all, how did we go about doing this research, and what did we find out? The research itself, which began in 2011, was conducted by the country teams within the consortium and entailed often very deep qualitative research in specific contexts. As well, we conducted a longitudinal panel survey in conflict-affected parts of the DRC, Uganda, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Nepal. In that survey, we went back to the same people three years apart and asked them about their lives after the conflict. We asked how household members made a living. We asked about their access and satisfaction to different services like healthcare, like education. We asked about what assets they owned and the food they consumed, what they thought of central and local government. Through all of this research and all of this data collected, the SLRC has ended up publishing over 115 working papers, and you can find them all on our website, securelivelihoods.org. But some of, the, some of the research brought out common patterns between all of these contexts. First of all, we found that livelihoods recovery after a conflict is neither automatic nor linear. Instead, we see a situation where households continue to experience instability and volatility in their food security, their asset wealth, and their livelihoods options, even though the average situation might look as if it's improving slowly. Second point is we found that access to and satisfaction with services did not lead to improved perceptions of government. Instead, we find that the relationship between state services and functions and legitimacy is more complicated and state legitimacy cannot be achieved through a simple transaction. Lastly, we found that after conflict ends, people often struggle to perceive their lives as, having getting, as getting better, even as certain development indicators like security would improve. Today's discussion focuses on that last point. Specifically, we'll be drawing on the newly published research by the SLRC called The Mental Landscape of Post-Conflict Life in Northern Uganda, which explores some of these behavioral challenges of this life this post-conflict, and in particular highlights the gap between the experience of those living in this context and the development interventions that seek to improve the lives of those affected. Today's expert panel will present this research in more specifics, as well as implications for development actors and development programs. We'll get a chance to discuss the role that behavioral research can play in improving policymaking in conflict and crisis affected situations, and maybe even touch on the applications of this evidence to the COVID-19 pandemic. So now I'll pass on to my colleagues. After each of their introductory remarks, I'll be taking one question from the audience. So please remember to use the chat box and uh, let them give an initial answer. If your question doesn't get selected or picked up right away, don't worry, we'll have time at the end for that. So first up, we have Marika Shamras. Over, you, over to you, Marika. Great, thank you, Stephanie. And thank you so much to everyone for coming. We've been really overwhelmed with the response and I'm really grateful to my fellow panelists that they're sharing their time and their expertise with us. Um, I want to start by talking a little bit about the research that we, the findings that we, we had, but maybe more prominently so, how it made me think about what it means to live a post-conflict life and to recover from conflict. And I guess what this research has done, it has given me a renewed appreciation of deep complexity and it has given me also a, a renewed appreciation of how actually we have a number of research tools that if we combine them in a genuinely interdisciplinary way in a way that 
the different kinds of tools that we're using speak to each other, we do gain insights that maybe we didn't have before and that I found a really enlightening and, and also very challenging experience. So um, I will share some of our insights with you today. So we started from the puzzle as uh, the Stephanie just gave you this, this finding from the first round of SLSC research that despite the fact that in some places where we did our research, officially conflict had ended and violence was measurably going down, this didn't necessarily get reflected in how people perceived their environment. We didn't see this straightforward connection. Okay, this is now a post-conflict setting. People's, the, the kind of the hard indicators of this, particularly around physical safety, but also about access to services and maybe infrastructure are measurably getting better, but still people are not experiencing this as an improvement. So why is it? It's, it's, a, it's a really puzzling situation because arguably you could say, well, if if people are not experiencing that life is getting better, then it's not getting better. It's, it's about how we perceive a situation. And so with this puzzle, we went <clears throat> to Northern Uganda. The war in Northern Uganda ended well over a decade ago. And with the end of the war, even though the underpinning conflict that fueled the war was never really resolved, the sense of marginalization and so on still exists. But with the end of the the war violence was also also came a, the gradual end of really horrific times of mass displacement in northern Uganda. People moved back to their villages, and reconstruction efforts started. Now these are <clears throat> controversial, contested. They haven't been as maybe effective as people had hoped, um, but nonetheless, we we can see that even though recovery has been maybe slower than could be expected there are indicators that point towards the fact that certainly physical security is better, infrastructure is better, access to services we see is a, is a real challenge. But nonetheless, there is, you know, on the face of it, it would seem as if life is, is a lot better. And yet we find the same here, that people feel very strongly that things are not improving. So why is that? And this is this is where we come into the space that we want to enter today with this discussion. And I don't, we call it the mental landscape. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second, but I guess in a way it's a cognitive turn. In a way it's, it starts for us as researchers from taking these perceptions seriously and from saying, if people perceive their situation in a particular way, then that is the reality. Then this is not something that we can argue against with other kind of indicators. It is this reality that we need to understand. And it is this reality that programs who want to support people need to also take seriously. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this concept of the mental landscape. And I think you could see on the slide sort of some pointers of what this mental landscape entails. So the way we think about the mental landscape is that there are many elements really that shape how people experience their lives every single day. There's the long kind of memories of conflict. There's a, a lasting sense of injustice, of loss, of neglect. There is everyday mechanisms in which people connect what they experience today to their memories of the past. There are expectations of how life maybe ought to be, of what had been promised and disappointment. There are interpretations of challenges and there's kind of sense-making. And the sense-making is really about something that we all do every day. It's about the kind of stories we tell ourselves to to make sense of a situation we find ourselves in. Every human has this, create, an, you know, create a narrative of, uh, of our own existence, of why we have our deeply seated identity, the stories that we tell ourselves and the sense we make 
of the surroundings. And out of all of this come perceptions um, of how you perceive the world around you. And in the mental landscape, all these things then also connect to the behavior and the decisions that you make on the basis of this. So, and this becomes a kind of a cross-pollinating cycle really in which these perceptions and the everyday experiences and the narratives that we create then fuel the decisions shape the decisions and the behavior that we that we then um, show and in turn of course our decisions will influence how we how we experience our life so this is the mental landscape which is maybe a, a, as a concept an interesting and complex one to get our head around and we'll talk about this a little bit more today so you can see already that it's it's quite tricky to understand this mental landscape as a concept. It's also really tricky to say, well, how do we then put some research to this to understand what is really going on? And what I've put up right now on the screen is kind of an overview of what this research design looked like. It's much more for those of you who are really um, very interested in the specifics of the research design, but obviously it's written up in the reports um, because I won't have time to go into the details. But I guess the core of it was that we wanted to understand behavioral mechanisms and we wanted to understand what exactly is it that can shape these behavioral mechanisms and what role exactly does this particular experience, this particular identity of being post-conflict um, play in shaping behavior. And it took us back to something I already mentioned, the, the stories we tell ourselves. We kind of started with the assumption that perceptions are the most important element in someone's reality. And we equally take seriously the stories that people tell themselves about their own lives. Again, we all do this. We all have narratives and why our lives and why we are the way we are. And we use this, the power of the storytelling to set up this experimental behavioral research to see whether actually people's stories would measurably shape how they behave. Again, I give you a very brief overview of how this works, but essentially we really ask people a very simple question. We ask them to tell us a story about something that happened to them in their lives, either in a very real time or during the times of the conflict. And we ask people what the meaning of the story was for this, this kind of sense-making process. And then from that, we then went through a series of behavioral games. And what we found is that actually the power of storytelling is so strong that you can see a measurable difference in how people behave on the basis of where they have just located their memory, whether they have just rooted it in a, a fairly recent experience or something that goes back um, much further and during a very difficult, troublesome time. So how does this change behavior? So there's a couple of interesting points that I just want to quickly make. So the first one is that we we see a difference in, how, in what we call people's preferences. Um, so for example, we see that the group of people who had just rooted their memory in a, in a recent memory rather than in the memory of the conflict did have lower standards of what they considered to be fair. So what that means is that somebody who has just thought about the times of the conflict actually has a much higher standards of what is considered fair treatment or not. We find that people who had just rooted their memory in the experience of or the memory of conflict have have higher standards of collaboration. They have higher standards of altruism than people who spoke about a more recent experience. So you have this, this measurable difference in how somebody who has just remembered the time, and again, it, it was just about remembering the time. A lot of people spoke very specifically about the conflict when we asked them about that time, but not everyone did. But even just saying, let's take us back to that particular time had such a powerful effect. And so what does this tell us? 
it tells us a few things. So one is, I, I mentioned this before, everyone tells these stories. We all tell stories ourselves and we all have as humans fundamentally similar mechanisms really in which we behave. They are very shaped by context. I don't mean to say that all humans are the same, but all humans work with cognitive biases that shapes the way they, they experience their surroundings. And so, for example, the what I what I just mentioned before, um, the, the difference that we see in people after they've just rooted their memory in a particular time, it also speaks to some of the cognitive biases that we know about. And we then find out that actually in this time of, of recovery, a lot of this idea of recovery, a lot of what programs to support this recovery do is that the demand of people to overcome their cognitive biases to kind of fuel their own recovery. So in a way, they're asking something quite superhuman of people who have been through a very, very troubling time, something so superhuman that um, it's everyone really struggles with. I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that is really very striking about northern Uganda is that a common complaint is that the youth today is idle, that they're not interested in putting, kind of investing in the future, in putting money aside, in investing their time and effort and hope in, into a small business and so on, but that instead they seek very quick material gains. It's a very, very common judgment, this idea of the, the idle use. And from our work, we kind of suggest that actually we could reframe this and we could say, well, based on the lived experience, based on the understanding that very often promises of a future business, promises of entrepreneurship, promises of better job after investing a lot of time and effort and money into education, these promises are not fulfilled and people have seen this time and time again that actually the idea of staying idle of not investing your hope into something that might never pay off is quite a rational choice and in the language of behavioral science this is called a present bias and we all know this that you kind of you put a higher emphasis on what is present than what you can see in the future that's the reason why people do not save enough money for pensions it's the reason why it's very very difficult to get people to change their behavior to to counter climate change because the the effect of some behavior today will be in the future and it's very, very hard to see this. Again, it's a common cognitive bias, but one that a lot of development programs and particularly development programs that want to support recovery kind of just expect people to overcome. And this, I think, is a really, really tricky one. So I want to conclude by saying, I think what this tells us in this mix of methods that we used and in this um, investigation really of the mental landscape is that there is a particular quality and it's also rooted amongst many other things in people's mental and cognitive state. There's a particular quality about a post-conflict environment that actually makes it really very difficult to experience the, the environment as getting better. And that of course can become a really tricky cycle because if you don't ever experience your environment to get better, you will not act in a different way and possibly it makes it even harder. So this is this is the very particular quality that I think is really important to, to keep in mind. And again, I, I just want to stress this, the kind of the cognitive effort that is expected to be delivered by people who have gone through an extremely difficult time is really quite high. And I think this is something that maybe we can discuss in the event today of how development programs might want to change this. Um, and these higher standards that we found higher standards of fairness also mean, of course, that there's much higher potential for disappointment. If my standards of what I consider to be fair are very high, 
it's more likely that I will get disappointed. Again, this kind of sits at odd, at odds with a lot of development programs, which in particular in, in post-conflict scenarios often feel like anything that's on offer from a program is probably better than what was there before. But actually that might not be true because if people experience something as extremely unfair, also based on the mental landscape, then this again can have a very detrimental effect. So uh, what I think would be fantastic today in the, in the discussions is to get further to the bottom of these questions of how development programs can use these insights into some of these behavioral mechanisms to adjust their programs and to kind of be more supportive than demanding of the people they would like to help. Thank you. Thank you, Marika. That was a really great start to, to our discussion. We've had a question from the audience, but I'm aware that I want to hand over to Teddy. So I'll just let you know what it is and ask you to please keep it in mind for later. The question is from a behavioral economist at the University of Glasgow who asks, whether you could say that in post-conflict situations, people also feel a lack of control. And if yes, how does that shape preference? So maybe just keep that idea of control um, with you until we get to the discussion later. And until then, I will pass over to Teddy for her remarks. Over to you, Teddy. Thanks, Stephanie, and uh, all the panelists and everyone who has spared time to uh, take part in this event today. Um, for me, I think what I would like to do this afternoon is to reflect more on how the findings of the study speak to the reality in Northern Uganda, based on what I know as someone from the region, but also what other studies that I've interacted with in the region uh, actually did find. So to what extent is it grounded, useful or not? And of course, I'll frame this uh, around the three core, you know, themes that the study looked at, that is collaboration and good behavior, fairness and inclusion, and the, the idea of idleness, risk-taking and agency. But first, before I do that, I think what I'd like to do is to sort of reflect a bit on the idea of the framing of the mental landscape as both an individual and a group phenomenon, which provides, for me, actually provides an important insight in understanding post-conflict environments or what people actually get to do. And, and, and come talking about this uh, or reading about it or look, it was really useful for me to understand some of the work I've done with young women, survivors of wartime sexual violence in the region who returned with children born of war and, and how they've been trying to, you know, uh, use their own, you know, spaces both, uh, because for them recovery, it's not just about uh, what happens to them, but more about how they gain and renegotiate uh, uh, social repair or acceptance. And, and a lot of that has to come through daily performances, daily actions, or how they behave. So it, for me, I thought that was really, really important, the link between the the link between the individual behavior, but also how that is anchored on, on what the social landscape or the social environment really dictates, how that matters for whether or not people really go through, you know, the experiences of conflict, recover. And also uh, having worked with them, you see a lot of times where, where you know, these experiences like Stephanie mentioned at the beginning were not very linear. 
they go in and out of, you know, relationships with their parents, with siblings, you know, like at one point they're having a good relationship, but at another point it's not. So And a lot of times uh, these young women would have to make decisions about how they behave in those situations, like move away from home during those times when relationships are not good and then maybe come back home once they feel like things have settled a bit more. So for me, really, it was it was a good insight to understand how people decide, act, and and uh, you know, or even decide to cut relationships altogether. Like for, with the example of the young mothers that I've worked with. The second thing that I'd like to reflect on briefly again is this uh, around the idea of targeting, uh, and uh, of course, from my earlier work as part of the SLRC in Northern Uganda, we do see and we do find that victims of or survivors of conflict. Uh, you know, based on this preferred approach, often get left out in in a way because the one size fits all does not really work for them. Because for most of them, what they need is um, sometimes more targeted, sometimes more inclusive, but or some sometimes what they need is you know uh, interventions that take care of their individual differences, whether it's based on age, gender, education. But what we do see is that it's the wealthiest who are benefiting and the most food secure who are actually getting the services. I mean, the, the post-conflict uh, services that were coming to the region. While these people most needed whether female-headed households, victims of serious crime, sexual violence, the war wounded, they were not getting the kind of help and assistance that they needed. And yet they had the most need. So what does that tell us about, you know, the idea of targeting and how it is framed and decided who, who really decides what is who to reach out to and who to include in the kind of programming that is happening. And of course, what we do see that when victims, the few who are trying to get the services, uh, in most cases, uh, the assistance really didn't make a difference in their lives. So again, I think, uh, you know, uh, the idea around targeting and how people really are reached out for me remains really an important focus that people are not the same. People are not homogeneous. We need to pay attention to the differences that underlie what and who people are. And uh, so for that matter, I will uh, move now to some of the key issues, which is uh, around collaboration and good behavior. Uh, first, I was really impressed with the idea of more altruistic or more collaborative uh, behavior. But again, for me, the limitation was why only, you know, more altruistic with real money? What would the findings be if it was something else? Would it still be the same? So um, for me, it felt like it may not be an accurate measure that shapes perceptions really. So maybe how do we broaden you know uh, this idea and these findings to look at what really makes life and what do, how do people in the region understand life because in real sense a lot of what happens like in other parts of the world is around the social connections networks that determines even whether you can access that money that exists whether you can access the services that exist so really what what would this mean uh in in actual sense for for people and uh if if it, if 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 it was about if it was not about money but also i was thinking well we made the money available to them so if where people are really struggling where they don't have enough what would that mean because um a lot of times what you've seen in northern uganda almost everybody has been affected in in almost the same measure but here we have some people who are expected to care and provide for others 
But of course, previous studies have also shown when people's own needs have not been met, it's almost impossible for them to be receptive and supportive of those people they should be helping. And that maybe explains some of the scrambles we see or some of the uh, challenges we see with uh, rupturing of uh, traditional support systems, uh, social networks, extended family systems that, you know, now they can't absorb its vulnerable members as it did in the past. Many, maybe in part because of some of these challenges that their own needs have also no, not been met. So I, I think for me, I would extend it to just not examine that people are, but in what, to what extent, you know, how does that happen? And why does it happen that people can be more collaborative? And like I said a bit earlier before is um, who is being included? Who is being, you know, part, part of this collaboration? Who is being altruistic? Um, I think for me, it would still be something that we could, uh, yeah, discuss and explore further maybe uh, to understand how it happens. And coming to the idea of fairness, I was really, uh, yeah, that you know uh when people recall their you know the experience of conflict then they, they they they're more you know uh in tune with this idea of higher standard of fairness and inclusion and especially the idea that the loss and uh, the suffering that they endure during the conflict brings to mind the expectation for reparations to address the loss and suffering but also that reparation for me is not just about uh uh, expectations because of what happened, but I think for me it's acknowledging the harms that they have suffered from the work that I have done, but also about restating the state's ob obligation to its citizens. So fairness for me would, would look at this, uh, or from the work I've done with victims and around reparations, would look at how is it about, you know, um, acknowledging harms? How is it about restating the obligation of states to its citizen? And we do know that in Northern Uganda, we of course haven't had any reparations program, but when it, when it, it, if it is to come, then some of these things really has to be part of it. And of course, it has to take care of the fact that different people have, uh, have different needs and different experiences of conflict. For example, the missing, would want you know information about their disappeared in order to have find closure, proper burial for those ones whose loved ones are still out there, orphans. So a range of measures that that really responds to specific. Uh, that is for them what would in a way people have had people say that is what would sound like fair. That is what would feel like they've been. Uh, reparations has been delivered. And, and of course, the idea that reparations is not just about outcomes, but more about the process. Because for people like survivors of sexual violence, the way you engage them in itself is not just about what they get in the end, but that process could help uh, promote recognition of who they are and what happened to them, social acceptance, you know, dignity. If those are the outcomes, well and good. But I want to just emphasize that it cannot only be limited around the outcomes, because in most cases, when I hear people talk about reparations, in, it's often limited to the tangible like compensation. They forget about the other aspects that are symbolic measures or um, acknowledgement, official acknowledgement, and all these other things that for a lot of people are very important. But also, I think one factor that would be really fair... Yes. I um sorry, I don't want to cut you off. I'm just uh, aware that I want to to have a chance to pass to the others. But so maybe if you could just wrap up the the last okay. point around fairness process, that was I think really a okay. crucial point. Yes, and uh, I think uh, coming to the last bit of fairness is the sense of hopelessness. Uh, 
that you see people have not got really what they should get. Uh, and uh, some victims actually died waiting for whatever they call it reparations, while some in other regions, you know, us feel like they see things happening in other places that they don't get the same kind of assistance. And we hear questions like, we only hear this is happening here and there. So that causes more frustration, with, you know, towards the government, but also sometimes towards the NGOs. So like, one example I want to use to wrap up is the UN Peace Building Fund at one point about 2011, when I was working with victims of the conflict, it was restricted to one region. And uh, when we came back and said, but the needs are everywhere. So they were like, you can implement it in the other places, but make sure the receipts reads that they coming, they are coming from a Choli subregion. Really like how does peace building work respond to needs of victims in a way that can be seen as fair and inclusive. So I'll hand it here and I'll take up the rest later. Thank you. Thanks, Teddy. That was really interesting, especially um, on that last point around fairness, which uh, I know a lot of the SLRC research, which Marika talked about in the beginning, um, touches on. So next up, I want to hand over to Ben, who's going to talk a little bit more about um, behavioral research and its applications um, globally, taking us um, into uh, some context beyond northern Uganda. Over to you, Ben. Thanks, Stephanie. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll share three reflections, general reflections, based on the research findings and then a couple of thoughts on policy implications that we might derive from the research. And to kick us off, a first reflection, really echoing what Teddy said, the importance of introducing a behavioral lens in post-conflict research, policy and programming, but very much acknowledging that human behavior is much more complex than a simple reduction to cognitive biases and heuristics. That systemic um, dynamics and structures play, of course, a huge role. And seeing this reflected in the research was a real positive, um, not surprise, but phenomenon, as we don't always see it reflected sufficiently in behavioral research. That, and I think this is really important as a secondary impact of this research, adds to a field that is very much dominated by the weird phenomenon, meaning that estimates see over 80% of study participants from social science and behavioral research coming from Western industrialized, rich and um, Northern countries. So very often it's hard, even impossible to generalize findings from social and behavioral studies across the globe because they're so weirdly dominated. So adding further to the inside space is really important from behavioral lens, but again, not to reduce it to simple cognitive biases and heuristics. I also wanna echo Teddy in the importance of further investigating in any policy implications that we might derive from that research, the objective conditions of people living in Northern Uganda. A really good insight from neuroscience over the last years was the proof of how poverty actually impacts cognitive abilities, our decision-making capabilities and particularly future thinking capabilities. And for example, having to deal with less than $2 a day equals more or less um, a night without sleep as far as comparable impact on our decision-making capabilities is concerned. So just incorporating such findings into how we perceive the results um, of this study and others is really important. Context matters, that's a really general finding, but really found again in this study. The second one, when we talk about behavioral science, behavioral insights, we very often think of a process of solid research, including ethnographic qualitative research as undertaken here. But then 
as the second phase, a process of identifying observable behaviors and designing ideally with the people affected interventions that might change these behaviors in line with um, the explicit objectives of the people whose very behavior we are intending to change. But I really want to outline that this approach has its merits, but no nudge can fix a broken system. So if systemic issues are not working sufficiently, if a system, a government system, for example, doesn't deserve trust, it's the wrong approach to apply a um, practical behavioral insights approach to this very problem. And the third kind of related point that I want to make is recently the Council for the Development of Social Science Research in Africa issued a really good bulletin on the on RCTs, randomized control trials in Africa. The debates around the ethics of RCTs is decade long, but some of the findings really point to not only ineffective results, but negative um, results on the very affected communities. So moving forward, policy implications from that research really should incorporate those findings and emerging discussions on human agency, meaning the involvement of the very people who we are delivering services to, whose choice architecture we seek to change together with them in the designs of experimental interventions. And to wrap up, like two considerations that came out. What I found personally really intriguing was the finding on norm perception. Essentially, people in Northern Uganda are seeing that um, according to their own perspective, norms have changed and along with it behavior that people in the current generation act less socially than in the previous generation, that the conflict is a main driver for that norm and behavior change. Now, the findings uh, contradict that if we infer that the behaviors we saw being exhibited in the games reflect real life behavior. And just with norm perception, there are huge opportunities for concrete and applied interventions. For example, in Saudi Arabia, it has one of the lowest um, ratios of women in the workforce. Latest studies show about 15% of women being in the workforce. And men in Saudi Arabia have to give the explicit permission to allow their wives to join the workforce. Now, overall, men overestimate the support of other men to this chauvinist norm, meaning they think that most men are against letting their wives join the workforce, which is, in fact, not reflected. If you survey Saudi Arabian men, the majority expresses the support for women joining the workforce. Now, just making this norm salient with husbands led to women in these marriages having a significantly higher chance of applying and being interviewed for a job. So just working with non-perception findings, for example, and the practical policy implications has huge opportunities. And I want to close with a couple of thoughts on the study um, set up in terms of priming memories of the conflict, priming potentially traumatic memories, also reflecting my work in Germany and Rwanda. Because we've seen studies seeing this leads to more pro-social behavior in this very study. We've seen just the experience of traumatic behavior in conflict led to more pro-social behavior in some West African countries, such as Burkina Faso and Togo, particularly among women. But there's mixed result when it comes to openly discussing trauma and conflict in societies. In Rwanda, for example, that's a major vehicle for the country to deal with the genocide of 94, and particularly the group that was persecuted at the time, the Tutsi, every April being very explicit in sharing memories. There are mixed results on the mental health effects of sharing this and making these experiences salient, equally in Germany, but 
having worked and lived in Germany, um, I just want to point again from the individual behavioral perspective to larger political perspectives, where we saw the emergence of what's called secondary anti-Semitism. In other words, um, the Germans will never forgive us for Auschwitz, as a famous um, German Jewish scholar stated, meaning there was the emergence of a new phenomenon that essentially reflected on expressed trauma by survivors and created new negative dynamics between two different groups, meaning Jewish Germans and non-Jewish Germans and a secondary anti-Semitism. And I mentioned this because there's direct link to other work that I highly appreciate and value, um, led by uh, Larry Cooley and Papaloudis um, on scaling and fragile context that reflect on what works to scale effective intervention in fragile context and seeing that incorporating perspective of bonding, bridging, and connecting social capital, connecting social capital, meaning social capital between certain groups and governmental institutions is one of the key success factors. And I think the greater reflection on in-group and out-group dynamics uh, in Northern Uganda, and particularly this um, linking social capital is a key further research um, result that further policy implications should build on to further improve livelihoods in Northern Uganda. I'll leave it at here. Thanks, and back to you, Stephanie. Thank you, Ben. That was really great. Um, and I see that we've actually had quite a few questions which I'll be saving up um, for the end. So last but not least, uh, we have Kennedy. Uh, who is going to bring us back into the research um, specifically on Northern Uganda, but also taking a bit more of a practical uh, sort of program implementation and design lens. Thanks very Over much, to you, Kennedy. And thanks, everyone. Uh, I'll talk about this research from the perspective of a peace building practitioner, having worked in what this paper calls Northern Uganda, but which I would call Acholi land but also the greater Northern Uganda, including Kalamoja, Tesol, uh, Western Nile, and also Western Uganda, especially around the Rwenzori mountain, and in the greater Great Lakes region from DRC, South Sudan, Central African Republic, and the Central, uh, South Sudan and Central African Republic. Uh, what behavior science brings in peace building, I think, the first and to me the most important behavior science should be seen as integral to peace building. Because every time we're talking about peace building, peace conflict analysis, the basics of it is that we are talking about attitude, behavior, context, or contradictions. And these are the basics around which a good conflict analysis should be based. Therefore, by talking about good conflict analysis, we are talking about integrating behavior science into peace building. Um, most significantly, in peace building, we are talking about rebuilding or transforming relationship and including uh, getting, for example, the survivor of, of violence and the perpetrators to talk about how to rebuild broken relationship. So behavior science becomes integral to peace building and in any peace building programming. The second point I want to raise is by focusing on behavior science, it 
forces or it helps in focusing and being expressed or being conscious about the work that we are doing. Hence, behavioral science has to be built or needs to be built in the program and program, peace building from pro programming, from conflict analysis, through project design, implementation, and even how projects are evaluated. And most significantly, keeping an eye on whether there is transformation of relationship. Because if peace building doesn't transform relationships at the end of the day, then it leaves a lot of gap. It leaves a lot that needs to be desired. So I see uh, behavior science as helping us, the practitioners, to get more conscious and even more explicit on the work that we are doing. Most significantly, I think the focus on behavior science helps in better targeting. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Marika and uh, Teddy talked about young people, for example. If you are build, building, making a peace building program or implementing a peace building program, whether you choose to target, for example, young people, you need to break the groups further down. For example, uh, we're talking about the young people who are associated with armed groups, those who return from armed groups. Are we talking about uh, individuals who are from hard to reach places and families? Are we talking about uh, young people in urban areas and rural areas? All these have got different needs. And therefore, by targeting the specific group of people and understanding the behaviors of these groups of people, then you are able to develop a better peace building responses. So in summary done well, the focus on behavior science as Marika presented improves the quality of peace building programming, the quality of analysis programming, better targeting, most importantly, the whole monitoring evaluation and learning. But of course, there are some challenges, uh, some of which are thrown out by the paper, but also from a broader perspective, say in Uganda. Number one, how to distill or make a distinction between the micro issues, the meso issues, the macro processes, and get a true picture that behavior, uh, behavior science could play remains a challenge. If we look at, say, the political developments in Uganda, democratization process in reverse gear, poverty increasing in most parts of the country, especially the northern and east, but definitely in all conflict-affected areas or what the paper calls post-conflict areas, the question of powerlessness, and marginalization, the feeling that you can't do much, you can't change the political process, your vote cannot help you to change the political process. Uh, then how this is affecting the entire country, the young people, for example, but then how to distill the elements of those processes that affect the post-conflict affected areas or areas emerging from conflict and the entire political developments in the country becomes a challenge. Also, if you look at the question of justice and fairness, 
especially when the institutions that are supposed to be administering justice are riddled with corruption. Take an example of land justice. It's across the country, highly pronounced in northern Uganda, generally, and in Acholi land in particular. So the extent to which ordinary members of community feel that they can get justice around their land, around their livelihoods, uh, remains uh, a big challenge. So when integrating behavioral science in peace building, this will remain or is one of the challenges that I see how you can apply it in the context like Northern Uganda or Uganda in general. And probably I'm aware that this paper focused on the research in Northern Uganda or what I would call a Choriland for purposes of this presentation, but maybe would have been better or good if we could have widened the, the scope especially around the control groups uh, to include other areas emerging from conflict in northern Uganda and be able to see whether there is like a national picture that emerges from this. The second element I wanted to raise uh, is that to be effective, behavior science needs, needs to, to be effective behavior science should be integrated in peace building throughout the project cycle. But we still have significant challenges of the two schools coming together, especially around tools and methodologies. Whether in your programming, you are focusing on key people or more people, individual or personal level or social political level. Most significantly, I think in peace building, there has been a great change in the last two, three decades in terms of getting easy to use uh, tools. But most of the behavior science is still used, uh, the, the tools that uh, we still have or that we have currently uh, focus on, for example, using large data sets, for example, as this study did, or randomized control trials, which are good in their own way. But if you are a practitioner having a project targeting maybe uh, say a hundred people, and for the large data set, maybe you require a bigger group, it becomes a challenge. Or if you are targeting say young people to use this example, who are involved in substance abuse, you might want to target, for example, key people like leaders of these gangs or these uh, individuals involved in substance abuse, be it alcohol, be it uh, drugs or whatever. And maybe sometimes they may not be too many, but most significantly how to control, to, to work with a control group in such a way uh, groups that are vulnerable, for example, like young people involved in substance abuse, becomes a big challenge. So I think for to better integrate behavior science in peace uh, in peace building, we need to focus on developing better tools, sim simpler to use. By better, I mean simpler to use tools which any practitioner can use and adjust to their contexts. Uh, 
lastly, I want to raise the question of uh, sustainability of the initiatives and to go with the example of the youth groups that I was talking about, uh, how to ensure that you work with them in long term when most of the funding is short term, but most significantly how to build projects that have elements of both remains a very big challenge, definitely for Northern Uganda, but also for other areas that are emerging from conflict or post-conflict areas. I thank you. Thank you, Kennedy. That was really great. Um, I've been collecting a few questions as we, uh, as we go along. And although I'm very tempted to take facilitator's privilege and ask the first one, I, uh, I'll go back to, um, to a couple which came through at the beginning. This was specifically um, asked to you, Marika, but I think actually, Teddy, you might also have, um, have some good insights. It's this question of control that I mentioned earlier. So essentially, uh, this is a question saying, would you say that in post-conflict situations, people feel also a lack of control? And if yes, how does this shape um, preferences? So maybe we'll start with Marika and I'll ask Teddy to compliment. If you could speak about lack of control and essentially this, um, this idea of, of agency, which I know comes up in the research, but you've not yet had a chance to touch on too much. Um, thank you. And thanks everyone for your wonderful contribution. I think the, the question of control of Korea is the That's a big one in behavioral limitations. Um, it takes me back to this point that I made earlier about risk. So it's often quite puzzling for development programs why, for example, a young person does not want to take up a loan to start a small business. But if you speak to the young person, they say, well, I really cannot see how I will ever be able to pay this back. It doesn't really fit in what we have on offer here. So <clears throat> not taking this up is, you know, is, is retaining control, which I think is a very, very valuable thing to have to say, I'm, I will not take on this offer, which I don't think is going to work. And at the same time, I will not expend my hope, my ambitions, my energy into something that will get disappointed because maintaining hope is a really important part of this. And so, yes, obviously these, these questions really intersect. Um, there's another point to this control, which I wanted to pick up on both, both uh, actually all other speakers made this point. How do you combine this insight that there are certain behavioral challenges with the truth that there are also structural, political, and so on challenges? Kennedy made this point just now that what do you do in a space where you have shrinking democracy and so on? And I guess I have two points on this. So uh, Benjamin said that you know this is not nudge, nudge theory approaches. You can't just nudge people to be better at their post-conflict recovery. And I think one of the sentences in our, uh, in our report is, positive thinking is not a development strategy. This doesn't propose that you just need to change your attitude and then things will be better. If you have a president who speaks in discriminatory ways about your, pop, your, your group of people, then you can't perceive that away. So this is not what this is about. It is about understanding how some of the insights from behavioral science can be used to work with that situation. So rather than thinking, how can behavioral insights change or you know, improve democracy, the question could be, how can people use behavioral insights about collective action, about communication, about collaboration to find better ways for civic engagement, to find better ways to 
build the social capital that that Ben also mentioned. So it's not one or the other in a way. It's to say, well, what do we need to know about how humans function that can then help with with addressing the situation? Thanks, uh, Teddy. Can I ask you that same question, but also throw in? Um, something specific that's that's come up, which is this idea of collective preferences versus um, individual preferences and how uh, individual biases interact with, with um, collective biases. Because I think this is an interesting angle to the control and agency question, because a group may feel a certain amount of agency or have a certain amount of control, whereas that may not reflect um, the experiences of an individual. So if you could sort of um, comment on, on those two, that would be great. Thank you, Stephanie. I think for me, um, I speak more from the experiences of victims of the conflict. Um, and I think uh, when it comes to the idea of collective individual preferences, what I've had always people saying, you know, of course, individuals will always have their own interest. But, but I think also what has happened is uh, that you know uh, what exists in terms of the collective uh, people feel does not meet their their really individual needs or even come close to acknowledging what they have lived through. So for me, I guess the point is how do we make a balance between the two? You know what is easier to 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 actually do sustain fund get the funding for and of course from my work what we see happening a lot is you know like activities or interventions that addresses more of the collective than the individual preference. But for a lot of people, of course, people say the magnitude of the conflict is so huge. There are so many victims. There's almost no way that we can uh, meet the needs of each and every person who has, uh, you know, suffered. But but I, I still do think that uh, what people are actually looking for in the collective is a multiplicity of uh, interventions where they can pick from. It might not entirely address all their needs, but at least if there's a complex you know, uh, multiple, you know, interventions that, you know, different people can interact with it in different ways. And maybe in a way, their own needs and their own personal uh, preferences and maybe to some extent can be addressed because we know that people have also suffered in multiple ways. So we cannot say, you know, one, one sort of uh, approach or intervention can help uh, redress the experiences of, of the conflict. But really, how how do we yeah, combine like and make 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 uh, some uh, create some balance uh, to make sure that that happens, so people feel that they've been heard and their needs have been addressed. Thanks, Teddy. Um, I have a couple questions that that came in specifically on the role of psychosocial support and um, and trauma counseling in in shaping the mental landscape. Um, and as well, what role um, or what merit trauma therapy might have in, in managing standards and, and perceptions. I wondered if I could go to you, Ben, for that, um, who perhaps you can take us into, um, into the applications of these concepts more broadly. Thanks, Stephanie. From what I know, there are positive effects on psychosocial support, trauma counseling, on the mental health of survivors of atrocities, of conflict, um, as shown in Rwanda, in Germany, in Liberia. And what I'm particularly interested in with is 
that when we look at post-conflict contexts, we often look at the prevalence of violence in society and really try to reduce this. But somehow this worldwide acceptance of domestic violence, of gender-based violence, is then mirrored in our like view on post-conflict contexts. And therefore, I'm particularly interested in the effects of counseling on domestic violence and GBV. We've seen the prevalence in northern Uganda, according to the research, being around 85%. That's an unacceptable status quo as it is worldwide in non-post-conflict settings as well. But I was really happy to see positive effects on this in Liberia, for example, effects on trauma counseling for survivors of um, conflict situations, but a particular focus on domestic violence. Now, the huge problem is the scalability. It's pretty high costs, and I haven't seen a, like approaches where it was scaled to a degree where it was then possible to like access provide access to these services in an equitable way also across different groups largely disaggregated into survivor and perpetrator groups with often perpetrators wanting trauma therapy there are findings that many perpetrators of atrocities actually live quite well with what they have done but it's a different discussion but long story short positive results huge challenges in the scalability and in my opinion, huge importance to add a specific gender and GBV lens to it, and to also add from the individual perspective, a social perspective to it on peace building processes and looking at what could be processes that kind of combine how we deal with individual trauma with connecting in terms of bridging social capital, the different groups in a society as attempted in Guatemala, in South Africa, with of course not having a global best practice, but with, in my opinion, good approaches coming from a number of countries that like need to be reflected and adapted in new post-conflict settings. And I hope that answered your question. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Marika, did you want to make a quick point on trauma as well? Yeah, I have a, I'm wondering actually how my fellow speakers, uh, and maybe Kennedy, particularly you, because you spoke about the challenges of sustainability of engaging with youth, how you think about this. I guess for me, what's um, useful about the concept of the mental landscape versus trauma is that they're very, I imagine them to be very different. And I don't want to diminish at all the existence of trauma. But I guess I've always found it very challenging to where you, you have a lot of work that kind of speaks about traumatized populations and that often puts a kind of level of paralysis and this idea that everyone is traumatized in a particular way, I find, I've always found quite problematic. And Teddy has spoken a lot about the need to understand the individual experiences and about the many different layers that individuals have. And I think what I find helpful about the notion of a mental landscape versus trauma is that it sets up the everyday experience, the kind of the narratives and stories we tell ourselves as what, what shapes our experience. It takes it maybe out of the realm of thinking in a kind of blanket way of traumatized populations. Because like, to me, that sometimes then doesn't pay enough attention to the, the individual nature of this. And again, I say this not, obviously there are individual cases and there are, are very successful trauma therapies, but I guess we set it up in a very distinct as a concept in a different way to not say this is all about trauma, but this is also about fundamental human mechanisms um, that shape how, how people experience their everyday lives. Thanks. Uh, Kennedy, did you want to come in on the on the peacekeeping angle? And I, I'm aware that when you when you spoke, you talked about the importance of, of relationships. Um, and if you could talk about how development actors um, should or 
or are prioritizing certain relationships? And um, what's the best way to go about that without marginalizing certain individuals um, or groups? Okay, thank you. Uh, relationships are critical in any peace building programming because it's uh, it's the backbone, it's the the glue that sticks society together. But it's easier to talk about, but hard to implement in practice because contexts change, expectations change, and more so if we, since we're talking about Northern Uganda, the expectations 10 years ago and the expectations now are different. So how to ensure that the rebuilding of relationship moves along with society as society moves on remains probably one of the biggest challenges that we encounter or have encountered in peace building programming, which also links to the whole question of trauma and speaking as a non-expert on trauma. But some of the programs I've seen on trauma and trauma therapy is being stuck in one particular context or being interpreted across the board without taking into account individual needs. And if you are to uh, take into account individual needs and you are talking of a population of maybe two, three millions, how to design projects that meet the needs of these uh, people because the populations are large remains a challenge. Yet the generalized ones, like we have seen some in Northern Uganda, but also elsewhere, most evaluations have pointed to the fact that they have been helpful, but not as, as initially uh, thought, or they didn't meet the expectations in terms of uh, the coverage, but also in terms of working with a number of a larger number of conflict-affected population to meet their individual needs. So trauma therapy, just like relationship building, becomes a challenge when the numbers involved are many. But most significantly, when the democratization process is in reverse gear, when the powerlessness is increasing, when they feel that they cannot change anything around around uh, anything around them when they feel that the institutions supposed to protect them like for example the justice uh, minister of justice and the whole uh, court process the whole local government process on the contrary they are seen to be against them then it poses very significant challenges when it comes not only to programming, but also the extent to which people would feel that the relationships have been reconstructed. So what do I think that needs to be done? I think part of the challenge, be it with peacekeeping, be it with the justice system, be it with the local governance system, would be to work on first approaching 
or working on corruption, for example. But number two, work with societal leaders in the broadest sense of the word to create a certain vision and a certain narrative that cuts across the entire society. Then in that way, when they fear that they can pick the broken pieces, when they fear that individuals fear that, yes, you can change, or your voices count, or you can cast a vote, for example, in the, uh, like how Uganda is expected to do in the coming months, and it can change something, then at that point, you can talk about rebuilding relationships and also re-stabilizing the society. Thank you. Thanks, Kennedy. That's that's really interesting. And um, and I like how you brought in this perspective, first of all, of the difficulty of actually having action in these contexts, but also the difficulty of going from research findings and behavioral insights to this to this action. And I think we're, we're running uh, towards the end of today's session, but I'd like our concluding remarks uh, from the panel to be on that very topic. Essentially, how do we take these research insights, this evidence, whether from Northern Uganda or other contexts, and actually hopefully apply it to action, to change, that in the end contributes to bettering the lives in, of people living in these post-conflict settings. So I'm gonna go back through the panel and ask generally and, um, and simply, what can be done to operationalize these research findings on the mental landscape, on fairness, on inclusion, on risk? If you could give me a very succinct answer about what you think should be prioritized, um, each within one minute, that would be great. I'm gonna start with you, Marika. Thank you. Um, one point I already made, I make again, what can behavioral mechanisms tell us? How can they be leveraged to improve, for example, collective action rather than looking at them as a limitation of human behavior? Can it do something for people to come together and to actually address collectively these situations that need collective address and nobody on their own can reestablish democracy it's impossible and the second thing i think is for me this research is a is the beginning of a journey of really thinking about the human experience of violent conflict and its aftermath in complex and different ways and teddy pointed out some of the limitations of this approach and i think we're standing at the very beginning of trying to kind of unpack the many layers that and help us understand what the human experiences are. With every layer, there will be another operational implication that can then be put to use. Thank you. Teddy? Well, I guess for me, um, some of the key things that I've already mentioned is how do we strike a balance between uh, um, you know, using the behavioral insight, uh, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the external factors that exist in this environment, whether it's the social, the political, like uh, Kennedy mentioned, and all of the things that happens uh, that really does interact with how people perceive, decide, and how they really navigate their their, their lives in the post-conflict environment. And I, the second one has to do with, uh, for me, more specific to Northern Uganda, but could also apply elsewhere, which is the context. How do we ensure that really we we, we give a, a fair view, like we mentioned, that, you know, like we already talked about the fair and inclusive uh, representation of some of the context. So that I think it's our obligation to do that as researchers, but also I think uh, 
it, it helps us to know how, you know, the different segments of people who are affected by conflict in that particular setting, you know, would fare and what would be required to, to really ensure that uh, we create a more inclusive and uh, stable uh, society in the end. Thank you. Thanks. Ben, any thoughts on operationalizing these research findings? Yes, two, and I don't want to repeat what other colleagues just said. The first one is further challenging us in terms of seeing people as uh, data producers or data users. Um, I'm quite inspired by an initiative called Poverty Stoplight that started out in Chile and has now um, scaled out also working in South Africa, Tanzania, and other countries, essentially where uh, members of households share insights on their situation, their economic situation, and as a result, get this back as actionable insight for themselves. So my example earlier on how might we use the insights on norm perception to feed back to community members to then invoke change, I think is the first strong suggestion for us to kind of challenge this dichotomy, data user, data producer, and how can we generate insights with the people, but also for people to be directionally uh, directed directly actionable. And the second one, just to pick one insight coming out of the research on the very different notion of agency and risk-taking, having a very different historical context in northern Uganda as opposed to, to other countries. And just with this insight, trying to design and test different ways to support people improving their livelihoods as collective action to also further enhance this norm that's been perceived as being lost. And I see a lot of co-design processes that don't deserve the name of insufficient reflections on power, for example, happening in development, but also some really good design processes with sufficient reflection on power dynamics. And to the degree possible, really co-designing this with community members, that would be the second implications. Thanks. Thank you. Kennedy, as the practitioner in the room, I will let you have the, the last word. If you could reflect a little bit uh, not just on your, your own experience, but some of what your co-panelists have said in terms of potentially turning this learning into action. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I think for me, there are two aspects. Number one, I would suggest further research, but this time using uh, control groups outside the, uh, the post-conflict areas, given that the conflict uh, affected northern Uganda largely, and to compare and see whether the same attitude, the same findings, the same issues would be applicable, for example, for the same population in Kampala or in western Uganda or elsewhere. And then armed with that, be able to tease out what additional support element need, may be needed for, uh, for individuals who were directly affected by the conflict. The second part is that peace building and behavior science, as I said at the beginning, they need to, they are, it's two sides of the same coin, or maybe it's one side, of the same coin, but how do you integrate integrate the tools so that they are applicable to both and easy to use, easy to apply in a context like Northern Uganda? I think 
if there was more work to be done, then focusing on how to do that, how to get the tools right, how to ensure that programming goes right, I think to me that would be the next step and probably the most important step for practitioners uh, like myself. Having generated knowledge, now the question of how to, I think remains a challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Kennedy. And on that final point, we've uh, arrived at the end of today's session. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for their insightful remarks and also all of the participants for their questions, their comments, and their engagement. I hope that this event has helped to increase everyone's understanding of the challenges of post-conflict recovery, and I use that word recovery quite cautiously, and the ways in which this research on behaviors and on perceptions can be used to improve programming and policy making in these contexts affected by conflict. The research papers that we've talked about and mentioned are available to download on the SLRC website, and you should also be seeing them on the right-hand side of the streaming page on the ODI website. The recording of the session is going to be available on ODI and on YouTube very shortly. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.